The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, and hopefully we'll get some uh, good momentum here on the space, uh, Bill Fleckenstein. Uh, Bill, I appreciate you spending time with us here, and I'm going to have this as an edited YouTube video probably in about a week or so. Uh, and I have to tell you, Bill, I've always been a, a big fan of yours. I used to watch you all the time when you were doing the media rounds back in the uh, immediate moments following the great financial crisis as I was building up my own career and my own way of thinking about markets. So this is a, a real pleasure for me. Uh, for those that are not familiar with who you are, your background, just set the stage as far as what you've done, the hedge fund that you ran, uh, and what you've done since you closed it down. Well, thanks for that warm uh, uh, introduction. Uh, I have been managing money since 1982. I started out as a stockbroker in late 79, so I've seen um, a lot. I've seen inflation firsthand. I saw Volcker operate. There's a lot of people uh, that have only had a couple of decades worth of experience, which is a lot of time they'd be in the business, but never really experienced that. And I think have been surprised at how this present round of inflation has all evolved. We can talk more about that. Um, anyway, I ran a short only fund from about 1995 until I shut it down in uh, early 09. I did so because I thought the QA would make it very difficult uh, to make money on the short side, regardless of the number of opportunities and um, 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 uh, bad policies that were being implemented. Um, and so since then, I've mostly I, I I pretty much just been running my own money and and uh, and uh, that of a few friends and a and a partnership that I've had for quite a long time. So uh, I don't go on uh, Bubble Vision anymore. I, I gave that up quite a long time ago. I don't see any point. Um, you know, I have my own website where I write a column about, um, the daily action and what I'm doing and I answer questions. And, uh, so that about sums it up in, uh, from the 30,000 foot level. All right, let's talk about the experience on the shorting side for a bit here. What was your, what was your approach? How would you go about figuring out what to short, how much to short? Talk about that whole, that whole experience and dynamic for a bit. Okay. Well, it took me a, a little while to figure out how, the best way to approach the problem was um, I ran a short only fund, so I didn't have longs. I didn't, I didn't have longs and shorts. So, um, you know, you get into these maniacal bursts and you could lose a lot of money. And in any case, from about 2000 on, I kind of 
I, I kind of had a set of, of rules that don't sound very insightful, but actually worked pretty well. Number one was, you know, what was the Fed doing? Were they were they making money cheaper and freer or less available and more expensive? That was a particularly important gradient as to how much exposure I might have and how long I might have it for. Then, um, of course, I, I wanted to see the the markets or individual securities that were kind of rolling over from a technical standpoint. I don't want to try to catch tops. I'd rather see them roll over and what I like to used to say, shoot them in the back. Um, and you needed to have, um, yeah, needed to see how companies responded to the news. Obviously, we've gone through a period up until recently where bad news didn't seem to matter. So you need to have bad news matter if you're going to be short. And then, of course, you need to have catalysts, and you have to do re- you have to do research to find out companies that are vulnerable. Uh, unfortunately, doing all of the research is like just about a quarter of the problem. The tactics and the managing the risk are a bigger portion of making money on the short side. At least they were for me when I was running a short-only portfolio. Um, I um, uh, I didn't really try to diversify. Uh, uh, I basically, a lot of times, I would be almost all tech. In 08, of course, I was in a, 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 quite a number of uh, subprime-oriented companies or financials. I normally don't like to short financials because it's all make-believe in the first place in terms of the numbers they report. Um, so um, that's that's kind of a generic description of how I used to try to go about um, running a running a, 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 um, a short portfolio with uh, you know serious exposure. I mean, when I was operating, I was generally at least eighty percent short, sometimes one hundred fifty percent short. Um, I very rarely was close to flat through all that time. Okay, there's a lot to to hit on there. Okay, so let, let's first talk about managing risk when you're taking on a short view because we all know unlimited risk when you're shorting because the upside in theory is unlimited whereas you know you can only go down to to zero obviously talk about for the audience uh, how do you think about managing risk in bear markets and when actively making a directional short bet in some ways you kind of have to approach it a stock at a time right in, in a perfect world You'd get an entry point in this in a, in a particular security, um, and let's say you know you let's say um, you had a company that was about to report. Let's just take a look at Best Buy. You know they were. Well, no, I don't want to do it theoretically like that. So anyway, I would have ideas that I thought might be vulnerable, and I would try to find a spot on the chart where I thought maybe I could I could find an, a, a place where. I could put the position on and say, well, I'll risk this much. If it gets through there, you know, in the, in the, in the short run, maybe the idea is not right. A lot of times I would just try to probe to get the position on. Then there would be other, other rare times. So individually, each time I would try to get the position on in a way that I could manage the risk of the individual position. But every now and then you get into moments in time, kind of like now, where the fat's in the fire and people can see that margins, more expectations for profit margins are too high. You know, these things seem to be deteriorating faster, we found out in the last couple of days based on Snap and Best Buy's reports. And last week we saw Walmart and Tar- uh, Target get slaughtered. Big companies that didn't used to be able to move a long ways on a bit of disappointment are, are now doing that. Of course, that happened on the way up as well. Um, so 
when you get into a period like now, I would be a little more aggressive about putting positions on. I, I might be not quite as focused on the risk of the individual name going against me in a way that might make me cover um, and be thinking that the, the overall backdrop is bad. It's feeding on itself. Incremental data points are going to be negative, And I kind of got the wind at my back. That does not happen very often on the short side. I mean, literally in the last 25 years, it's maybe happened. This might be the third time you know, there was OO um, after that, that, in that, that was a year and a half bear market, and then 08. But um, the problem is, it, it, like, for instance, in 08, the government was coming with new programs all the time, and there were these huge surges on the tape. So trying to not get, you know, get your head torn off in the short covering rallies, or sorry, the, you know, um, the, when, when there would be proposed legislation that was going to supposedly solve the problems, um, you know, you'd have these ferocious rallies. So it was really difficult, you know, um, to try to um, manage the risk through all of that. You know, remember, they made short selling illegal in 08 for financials. But, you know, anyone who tried could be a financial. IBM got itself deemed a financial. So did Winnebago. And, of course, what that did at that moment in time was it blew up all the so- so-called market neutral books. Because, you know, they all got got blown up. You know, they weren't supposed to lose much money. And when we change a rule like that, they lost a lot. So the the managing the the um, overall portfolio can be quite tricky. This uh, environment we're in now has been a little more one sided than I than I would have guessed on the downside. I, I, I thought they might have had uh, uh, um, a, a bigger bounce already, um, you know, but after being so such a one way street for so long. And maybe it's going to be that way on the downside. I, I, I really don't know. But for the moment, the Fed can't save the day because um, they're purportedly trying to fight inflation with midget interest rates. Yeah, no, I, that, that's absolutely right. And and again, this is more from my own curiosity. In terms of the way you would construct that that short book, how many positions would you try to target? What was your primary approach? So, you know, Carson Block, I had on one of these spaces and his primary thing is try to focus on companies where there it looks like there's some some degree of fraud, right? Try to make a real. Yeah, I I never I never really liked short to short frauds. I think if you're running them against a long book, you can do that because you know you've got some natural protection. Because in periods of um, you know wild psychology, the frauds go go crazier than the regular stuff. I mean, if I can't if if, if I'm having trouble pinning down a legitimate company. That doesn't want to admit their problems because they're they're maybe in denial, but but they're not going to lie. You get a fraud, people lie. It's the the, the the degree of difficulty factor is so much higher. So I tended I tended not to be involved in those. I mean, I, I did short a couple of frauds over the years, but I mean for sure. But it, it wasn't really my cup of tea, um, and I preferred finding bigger, more liquid companies because it's easy for me to manage my risk and. and um, and I would generally have, I don't know, 20 to 30 names. Sometimes I would be very big. I'd have 10% positions. I use options quite a lot uh, to try to control the risk. I'd, um, oftentimes I would, if I thought a company was vulnerable going into a quarter, I might be short the stock and then I might buy some puts, you know, at a certain place in the chart where I thought, well, people might try to defend it, but it might be bad enough that they'll blow through there. So I might be short 
you know, um, Apple's $140. Let's say they're reporting next week. I might be short it and I might have the 130 puts on, you know, and, and so if it got down there, I could cover the stock and sit with the puts. So I, I, I tried to do things where I could scrape out the risk whenever I could, thinking that over time, if I could take my risk down and keep my positions and my exposure the same, I'd, I'd be better off. And that wound up working out uh, pretty well for me. All right. So I think you had mentioned that you were doing a lot of shorting on on tech for a good amount of your time. My father actually ran a hedge fund as well and was one of those guys that made a lot of aggressive bets on on shorting against uh, tech from 2000 to 2002. Um, and you said that you, you avoid financials because it's largely make-believe from a shorting perspective, which is, which is interesting to think about. Um, but I'm curious uh, about how you view tech in this cycle here because – you can argue there's a lot of make-believe in tech stocks in the hope that these things will be uh, the next big thing. And obviously I'm referencing ARC there, right? But uh, yeah. but talk about some of the similarities of of tech from today to when you were kind of in the meat of your shorting uh, experience. The the thing that you – so so two things. The financials, what I mean by that is the, the flexibility that they're given in terms of, of the accounting means it's really hard to, to catch them if you think there's a problem on their books. That's, that's what I meant to say about the accounting. You know, there's so much latitude in what, what gets called what. If you remember back in the uh, housing um, um, uh, crisis, they had level one, two, and three, you know, mark-to-market schemes, you know, on, 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 on various different kinds of uh, of uh, CMOs and, and collateralized ob- uh, ob- obligations of all stripes. Uh, so anyway, I tended to not like them just because, remember, it's a win on the short side. You've basically got to get the people that are long to decide that you're right, their idea was incorrect, and they have to sell. So you need some kind of a catalyst. Generally, people like to keep the positions on that they have, generally speaking. So you need some sort of a catalyst to to um, get them to sell. Um, this cycle has probably just as many crazy ideas as did the tail end of the 99 uh, bubble. Um, but I didn't try to get involved in them because we have this other factor at work that didn't it wasn't a, 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 um, wasn't important back then, and that's the role of the the um, you know target date index funds at BlackRock and Vanguard run that that create that, that, that put a bid in the market. And then you had these, you know, cowboys now with hindsight, we can see with, you know, some of the, the Bill Wang and some of the Tiger community apparently were involved in, you know, gunning some of these names. And so there was a whole lot of stuff that really may never make any money that had, you know, tens and hundreds of billions of dollars of market caps. Now, a lot of those have been destroyed there. You know, you mentioned the ARC and that's kind of the one-stop shopping for, you know, egregiously valued co- tech concepts. The problem with those are until you get in the right environment, they're all about imagination. And so you can't win as a short seller. Like, uh, how am I going to defeat your imagination? I mean, just just look at the contortions that some of the Tesla bulls put themselves through what they've been willing to rationalize. And that's the way it is with a lot of these kind of, you know, cult-like stocks. So uh, in, in, in a period where things are kind of crazy, you cannot be short imagination types of names, regardless of how ridiculous evaluation is, because evaluation makes means nothing. Now, that's changed in the last, uh, well, it kind of started about a year ago. You know, stocks started, uh, the, the broad tape started to not go up as much, and, and then they destroyed the high-flying, you know, 
you know, arc kind of stuff that you that you just noted. Um, and, and now they're getting to some of the bigger names that were that were real businesses, but are just expensive, like the apples of the world. I, full disclosure, I'm short Apple. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of got off on a tangent there. I don't did, I don't know if I answered your no, question. No, 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 that, no. That was good. And, and the point about the cult like socks is interesting. I, I, I've tweeted out many times that when an investment becomes religion, it's time to lose faith, right? And and yeah. I see that a lot with the cryptocurrency space, and I see that with you know Tesla, which is kind of like the the Bitcoin uh, of of the equity market. Um, I'm curious, do you think that we're in a weird environment where it's easier for these cults to pop up just because of social media? I mean, I know you had Yahoo message boards back in the day and you had obviously people talking about, you know, some of these stocks that they just massively believed in just because they put a .com after their, their company name. But, but is something different structurally in the way that these, these stories come up versus history? No, I, I'm sure that helps fan the flames and gets people to focus on, you know, maybe more concentrated as as a group on the same names. But what really created this insanity was QE one, two, three, and four. And, you know, they never were able to finish QT. So I would argue that the insanity of the monetary policy coupled with the COVID lockdowns and the right moment in time for, you know, younger people to, to maybe decide to take a fling, then of course the very worst thing that can ever happen to you when you're a novice is to have a bunch of success. Cause then you think whatever it was you thought worked and in all likelihood you just got lucky and that's what happened. And so now a lot of these younger folks that have, you know, maybe done really well uh, are, are starting not to, and they don't really, they don't really know how, how investments really work. You know, if I had said that a year ago, they'd roll their eyes and say, okay, boomer. But the truth of the matter is, is, you know, I've studied a lot of financial history. I suspect you may have as well, but I don't, I don't, I don't think any, a lot of young people have, they don't know that a lot of these various schemes have happened over and over throughout history. And it's only in periods of, of generally speaking of irresponsible central bank monetary policy that you have these asset bubbles. And then you, this time we've gotten an, we've got an asset inflation and that's also tr- triggered uh, CPI inflation. So we've kind of got the worst of both worlds, thanks to the fools at the fed. <clears throat> and meanwhile, people try to act like they, the fed has all this credibility they say, well, the bond market's priced in, you know, nine rate hikes or whatever. My my rejoinder to that is, oh, really? How about this? The Fed's done seventy raised seventy five basis points. They haven't really even ended QE. Meanwhile, inflation's raging, and they talk talk a tough game, but they don't do anything. So I would argue to you that the bond market is tanked because it doesn't like what it sees, and it's and 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 yet the the narrative remains. Well, the Fed's in charge. This is happening because they want it to. I think before this is over, the people are going to see the Fed for the kind of the 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 half baked financial people that they are, and that's going to create a whole new set of problems. But we're 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 not we're not near that yet. All right, so that brings with a discussion around the bond vigilante term, which was bandied around quite a bit in the financial media, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013. And then kind of went quiet because everybody and their and their brother wanted to do nothing but chase yield, right? And I've used this line many times. You know, they wanted yield when there was now. They wanted you what yield when there was none. Now they want uh, they don't want yield when there is none, right? Um, talk about the the whole bond vigilante thesis and why why you think that. Let's get deeper in this discussion around why you think that it's not really about the Fed. It's more about the bond market saying to the Fed we don't believe you and that we have to take care of this ourselves. 
We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, um, I think that first of all, bond vigilantes was a, was a very uh, uh, sorry a term that was used regularly in the very late seventies, early eighties, because you know the, the bond market finally got the joke about the Fed. Now, part of that was because the yield curve was inverted for real, and therefore there's no possibility of getting carry. So only people w- w- that would that would sort of be willing to own longer bonds uh, uh, were either, you know, obviously serious savers, although they maybe they weren't right in their timing, or specs that thought there's a reason for rates could could decline. Well, rates couldn't really decline with a curve that inverted and, and waiting for inflation, you know, for Volcker to decide that he'd broken the back of inflation. So the, the, the term vigilante, I thought, was a little bit misapplied back then. But fast forward to now, the Fed got away with QE the first time, I think, in large measure because of the changes in the banking laws and the banks having to repair their balance sheets after the um, the real estate bubble and banking uh, bubble burst. So, so, so they thought, hey, we can do this QE and we don't get inflation. And, you know, we did have inflation, but it was small enough relative to what was occurring in financial assets. People weren't too fussed about it. Now we've got inflation for real because they way overstepped their bounds and they and they overplayed their hand. And then we've got a variety of other factors that have fed into it from the, you know, from a production and supply demand imbalance standpoint and things like that. Um, but the environment is so dicey now because the balance sheet of the government is so much worse from a debt to GDP standpoint than it was back um, then. And um, uh, so I don't I don't think the system could withstand the kind of rate hikes they would need to really break the back of inflation. I mean, we'll have to see how that plays out. Who knows when if, you know, at some moment the equity market's going to buckle in a way that people, you know, people start to think that inflation will come back under control. I don't really believe the Fed's going to get inflation under control. I believe we've probably seen the the highest, you know, year over year readings. But if we go from eight percent or seven percent or nine percent or wherever you th- we are down to four or five and th- that's kind of the low end of the range or three to four and it, it just keeps adding up cumulatively then they've they don't have control of inflation i don't really believe that they ever did i think that in, events conspired in such a way you know between distributed um manufacturing around the world and technology we had a period where Moderate rate inflation, you know, they called it too. If you, the CPI is a poor measure of inflation, but let's say it was three or four, it didn't bother people because everything else was going up and, and there wasn't enough disruption. So now that's all in the rearview mirror because these guys, the Fed, the central banks, believe their own press clippings and thought they could do anything. Meanwhile, as bad as the Fed is, the BOJ and the ECB are even worse. So then the dollar's been able to rally. So a lot of the, the, the Fed has gotten away with way more than they probably ought to have been able to. And that led them to, you know, to just 
continue to pursue bad policies, you know, well after it was obvious that they needed to do something else. So I'm glad you mentioned that point that the idea that there's so much more debt now than before. I keep making this point that if 6040 is dead, we have a real problem because the system cannot survive if both rates are rising and and asset prices are falling, right? Because then you've got higher interest expense to roll over that debt. Oh, and by the way, capital gains taxes drop as asset prices drop. So the, the revenue side for the government really gets hit uh, too. Um, I want to I wanna bring that a little bit to something that's been on my mind for the last year or so, which is the risk of another credit downgrade, like what we saw in 2011 when S&P downgraded U.S. Uh, quality. Now, I know there's a lot of people that will skeptically say they're not going to do that because last time S&P did that, I think they were sued by the U.S. government for something that uh, maybe was somewhat unrelated. But but talk about the risk here of sort of a, a questioning of U.S. credit quality in this kind of environment. Yeah, I understand the logic for that. And and uh, I, I don't think that's anything that we're going to deal with anytime soon. Um, you know, because and I think partly is because Japan and um, in the UK, I'm sorry, uh, and the the ECB are so much worse. I mean, you know, I mean, Kuroda's trapped because he's trying to peg rates at 25 basis points for the 10 year. Meanwhile, the yen's been in the tank and, in, and all their imports are going up in price. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out with the, the JGBs at the 10 year and the and the um, and the yen. Um, but but. So I, 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 you know, down the road, maybe the people are going to look at the U.S. somewhat skeptically. Uh, in the past, whenever those things tend to occur, obviously not in 2011, but in the past, before the euro became the euro, you know, there was always the group of central banks to behave responsibly. You know, mostly in Northern Europe, the Bundesbank, you know, the the the, the Northern European countries, Switzerland. Of course, now the Swiss are drunk because they're they've tied the, they've tied the Swiss franc to the euro. The euro, they have negative interest rates still. You know, given you know, deposit rates, given what's going on. So I mean. I think a lot of things are going to have to happen first before the people start worrying about the credit quality of the United, uh, of the United States because, you know, all these central banks have printing presses. Now, it's hard to use the printing press and people are worried about inflation. So that gets to be a tricky wicket and that could come up down the road. But um, I think it's quite a waste. It's, it's, a, it's a couple of steps down the road, I would I would guess. Okay, well, so to me, Logical beneficiary of all these policies and the and and the fact that the central banks are ill-equipped mentally and and uh, and from an understanding and from an you know a, a backbone standpoint to t- truly defeat inflation, I've felt that the precious metals would be the best place to be. Mm, that hasn't been an especially true. I mean, this year gold's done better than the stock market, but you know I don't I don't think those of us that have been bullish on precious metals feel like we've been re- rewarded in a way commensurate with the news. I think part of that is because a lot of younger people decided that they were, the Bitcoin was going to be their hedge. And I think Bitcoin is more of a um, leveraged tech stock and reacts to different things. So, you know, I think the big move in the precious metals that relate around the fact of the incompetence of the governments and central banks of the world is, is still in front of us. Uh, I think we're also going to see, as, as, as it turns out, there's when psychology gets wrecked over a, a lot of these kind of concept stocks, then people start to look for, well, well what's going to matter? What's going to stop them from going down? They realize, well, you know, cash flow, free cash flow, earnings, dividends. And so that's going to be the start of a swing towards 
value versus this, you know, maniacal search for, and paying for anything with a big, you know, total addressable market. So I think that the, the precious metals and the mining stocks, because they are they, they are cheap on a cash flow basis, they're all paying dividends. Some of them have have pretty strong earnings, so don't have big multiples. Um, you know, it, it, they started to come into a spot where they're going to show real numbers, and then COVID hit, and it, you know, it, it uniquely hammered them because uh, you know mining generally is a is a pretty body intensive business. And, um, you know, in a lot of these countries, uh, a lot of the mines are in, you know, South American countries where the healthcare systems aren't as, you know, as uh, uh, vigorous as they are here. So um, I think that in sometime in the next, you know, couple to 24 months, there'll be a big move in the metals and there'll be a really big move in these miners. Um, And I think in general, value is going to do much better than uh, growth for you know quite quite a quite a long time that's not to say no growth stocks will go up in price i just think generically value stocks no, nobody wanted a value stock because they, they they can't go up at warp speed and, and now and now we're seeing the downside of of that concept um kind of mental thought bubble breaking so I, I think there. I think there'd be a very good place to be. Probably the same can be said for, you know, some parts of the energy business. Probably things related, you know, to whether oil or net gas or all of those things. The, as everyone now knows, this whole green wave and and and, um, uh, somewhat uh, uh, um, overly optimistic viewpoints of people of what what they can do with those types of 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 uh, energy generation uh, products uh, or companies. Um, was ill-conceived, and we've got a huge. We need, we know, we're way behind where we need to be from a carb, hydrocarbon production standpoint, and um, you can't turn the switch on and fix that overnight. So that problem's going to be with us for a while. Yes, I am skeptic on Bitcoin. I I I uh, I I believe in the whole DeFi concept of finance, whether you want to call it blockchain or De- or however you want to phrase it. But I'm not a big believer in cryptocurrencies as a store of value. Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm not short them. I would never be short them. Um, but I, it's not. It's not what, where I. It's not where I want to try to make my investment. That is that 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 is predicated on the fact that I think the central banks have lost control a long time ago, and and can, will continue to be doing the wrong things. As for the Bitcoin mi- miners, I think probably. See, this is a weird thing. When you talk about something like a crypt crypto or some of those crypto growth kinds of ideas, that's that's one kind of a crowd that wants to buy that growth, right? But then you try to have value in that area, and it's the wrong, you know, the value guys don't probably believe in crypto in the first place. Not necessarily that's the case. So you're you kind of get to be not chicken and and you know, you're not fish, you're not fowl, right? Uh so I don't. I don't. I don't have a view on Bitcoin miners. Um, I, I. I. I suspect probably if I was if I was keen on them, if let's say I was keen on Bitcoin miners like you are, I would be a little worried of this environment is so dicey. What happens if some week something happens? The government says something, and and we get a big flush in crypto, and then they trip over, you know, the, the micro strategy. Um, 
you know, uh, um, um, loan covenants and you get some kind of a wash, big wash, you know, everything's going to go down in that environment. And, and that, that would be something I, I would be worried. And maybe there's people that are looking at your crypto miners, but really would like to feel better about how that may play out. Now, if that shoe doesn't drop, then maybe they come in and start buying them and then they lift. I don't know. It's not my area of expertise, but if I was trying to game the situation as I might from a short selling standpoint, uh, or even being long something speculative like that. Th- 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 that's how I would. That's how. I, that's what I would worry about. I don't know if that helps or not. And, okay, so so Bill, I've heard you talk about, uh, and you kind of alluded to it earlier, sort of the um, the enormous move uh, that we've seen into passive strategies. And I've used this term before that it's like structural insanity because you've got yes this automatic bid right that keeps happening yes. you know, at the turn yes. of the month and. And it's all market cap weighted. And, you know, let's face it, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it's not the Fed bailing out the stock market. It's the Fed bailing, uh, bailing out Vanguard, right? Because that's the beneficiary, right, right. right from all this, right? right. So let, exactly. let's, talk, exactly. let, let, let's talk about that for a bit, because I think that's something structurally that is very different than the past and also yes. is conceivably a very big uh, tail risk. Yeah. Um, and uh, to full disclosure, the, the, the man who opened my eyes to this is a fellow named Mike Green and his handle on Twitter is at Professor Plum ninety nine. I think it is. Yeah, I had him and, on. Uh, yeah, and everybody who doesn't know about this needs to kind of follow Mike and get up to speed, because we have an eight hundred pound gorilla, and that is the BlackRock and the Vanguard, and and you know what occurs in these target date funds, of which virtually everyone in corporate America, uh, corporate America is in one. So. As you said, they, they they buy and it's market weighted indices, and so expensive stocks get more expensive, and 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 so they've really really warped the market structure, and they did it. They they really came into power at a moment in time when QE was going on, and and then we got got it exacerbated by you know all the all the gambling that went on at home, you know during the lockdowns, you know with younger folks who you know decided to get involved for the first time, and so you had this wild frenzy, and all these things were part of it, and and this passive bid has really distorted things. Now how the backside of that actually plays out, we don't know yet. I don't know, and. You know, I've asked Mike this, uh, and and um, I, I don't know what he would say today because things have changed. But I don't really think you can get into a real trouble there without you know serious layoffs in corporate America, and that doesn't seem very likely. Even though we're starting to see you know some cutbacks in certain areas of, of technology with uh, hiring, um, uh, but that's just a slowing of the growth, not really any uh, big layoffs yet. So I don't know how it's going to play out. It is a serious factor and it'll probably only matter once. And then when it matters, it'll be the only thing that matters. But I, I, it's just, it, the fact that it's gone on this long definitely increases the risks, but doesn't necessarily mean that, that something bad's going to happen, you know, anytime soon, you know? Yeah. And I wonder if that means that going back to thinking about shorting opportunities, one should avoid trying to look for stocks that are in some of these, um, uh, passive indices. And I say that because we know from a lot of studies that the moment some stock gets put into an index, uh, the co-movement ends up increasing. The correlation tracks the, the school of fish, so to speak. The beta gets closer to that of the index, um, which means it's harder to maybe get some of that idiosyncratic potential. Um, what do you think about that idea? Because I think that's that's a different way of thinking about how to identify opportunities. Well, I don't know. It just depends on, it depends on what you're trying to do with your short, short portfolio. If you're trying to hedge out longs, 
and you've got a bunch of longs that are small cap and you've got it you probably want to have a hedge that's got the same sort of personality you don't want to get a personality mis- mismatch in you know of what you're long and what you're short if you're just trying to be a you know um a mercenary on the short side you want to get whatever's going to work in a way you can manage the risk the best and uh so i mean i don't have any problem being short apple i mean that's a that's probably that's probably the biggest one of the biggest weightings in all of the uh um you know these various different index funds um so it just depends i mean i it, it, it kind of depends on what you're trying to do i mean um just because they're in the index and they got bit up doesn't mean they can't go down yeah no no that, i mean that's fair i'm just i'm just thinking kind of more as a, a thought experiment about some of these names because if you get rid of that automatic bid maybe you can get closer to what the real true fundamental value would be yeah, but the the, the the automatic bid is across the board of the indexes with the weighting, sure. right? You know, and on any given day, it might be enough to push them up, but it might might not be. So, I mean, uh, it, you know, it really mattered when the tape was working, but now that the tape's not working, I don't know that it, it it's that big of a factor. I mean, you know, and 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 to some degree, that's probably why some of these big multi cap, sorry, you know, mega caps have held up. Maybe that's why Apple was able to hold such a large valuation on such a epic market cap for as long as it did before it finally started to crack. Years, and where are food uh, prices and where are food prices going to be? Yeah. <laughs> that I, point yeah. I I think probably it's not smaller. I don't know that they're going to be able to get it dep- you would need a big train wreck for them to start QE and yield curve control uh which is probably how they would have to come back with QE they would call it well yield curve control and not Q, not not pure QE. Um, I don't think there's a meaningful chance of them getting any real reduction. Whether they'd be able to actually turn the spigots on again with inflation running as it is, I guess if the stock market broke hard enough and they said, okay, now inflation's going to come down and we had a few monthly good readings, you know, maybe they could start QE again. I would, so I would just say it, it, it'll be where it is now to maybe slightly larger. They're, they're not going to be able to go crazy with it on the upside and they're not going to really be able to shrink it. I, I don't know if that's a cop out, but that's kind of how I see it right now. Sure, sure. Yeah, they could. There's all kinds of rationalizations. I mean, uh, let's let's put it this way: I'm willing to take the over on the size. I just don't know how how big it can get because I don't see how they you know how they get inflation under control enough to come up with a bullshit story to be able to start QT again. I mean QE again. Well, but that's that's the thing, right? Like that, that's why you can never really get get out of this. I know you've said before that the Fed's trapped, and I agree with that because. Every time they want to try to reduce the balance sheet, it assumes that between now and when they actually do, there isn't a black swan. Well, the problem is, you know, having so much leverage and re-leverage with every single accident, every single crash, that the black swan crashes happen more frequently. So right. you're, you're in this interesting race against time that they've they've created the, the, the ticking time bomb on. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Right. So basically, the Fed policies are a failed strategy because they can never be exited. 
right? We started with Greenspan in the mid-90s. He made rates too low because we believed in productivity and inflation was going to be under control. And and then they led to a bubble. It was kind of kid stuff from a monetary standpoint relative to QE. So we had we had that bubble. And then uh, when that burst, as the economy was tanking in 01, we had the 9-11 attack and everything got blamed on them instead of the bubble bursting that the Fed had you know, uh, created. Then the Fed you know, keeps rates too low, too long. We have a real estate bubble. And then the epicenter of holding the leveraged debt that was no good was the banking system, which the Fed was supposed to be regulating as part of the change in Glass-Steagall in 1998. And then we got to QT. So what I would say is we've had a long run, 20 plus years, of of bad Fed policies and that we've never been able to exit. And each time we've had to come back and redo them, they've been redone in a slightly different fashion. But the net of it is that, that, that we, we, we cannot leave NERP and ZERP. I mean, they're, they're trying and we'll see how far they get. And then, you know, what's really, really going to be interesting is what does it take for the Fed to say, okay, we've won for now and we're going to back off in our tightening? What does that t- and what does the world look like when that happens? And and then what does the bond market do when that happens? So all the interesting things that are going to that are going to dictate how the next say f- half a decade goes, we won't really have a good look at trying to formulate an opinion until um, you know after this tightening cycle is uh, is declared, you know, kind of over for whatever reason. What do you think, um, Bill, about the idea that maybe the, I mean, I don't think we'd ever see this, but it seems to me like you'd fix a lot of problems if the Fed was simply rules-based, right? Instead of having this kind of uh, subjective human decision-making element. I mean, it, 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 it seems to me that that's really the solution, but I want you to talk about, you know, sort of the benefits or, or risks there. I'm sorry, the benefit or risks of what I, I you kind of- so of, a rules, of a rules-based Fed. In other words, something that, you know, where it's based on something like Taylor rule or something other, some other metric where it's not based on some committee. Um, I think that, I think it would be a good idea because it's not that the fed was so smart before it's really, it's, they have to take a little page out of what doctors used to, you know, the Hippocratic oath, you know, first do no harm. And so the advantage of a gold standard was not that gold was magical. It just kind of kept in control the amount of, of credit you could supply or money you could supply and 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 therefore things could never get too out of hand. And of course, people would get frustrated and say, "Well, we can grow faster. We need to stimulate." And now, lo and behold, you know, um, fifty years after the gold window was closed, uh, we've been we are where we are, and we've been on the seat of the pants standard for quite some time. And it used to be that, and even Greenspan did a little of this before he got became such an egomaniac. Was that look? We know that money, monetary policy works with a long lag time, and we don't really know what that is. And we supplied the system with a whole bunch of stimulus. Now we're going to start taking it back slowly but surely. It's not like they had an exact read on what the stimulus did and what the retraction of the stimulus did. They just knew that from hit, from 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 what they'd learned over history was after we put it in, we need to take it back out. Not so that we can cut rates when the next problem occurs, which is what they say today, but just because we know adding stimulus historically, you know, it can easily be overdone. And the overdone stimulus is far more dangerous than not enough. That's how you get bubbles. That's how you get bubbles that wind up meeting bad economic policy and lead to the 30s. And that's how we've had all these bubbles. You know, we didn't have any bubbles for a long time in America. And then we've had two or three in the last 25 years. So it's 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 a rules-based standard isn't magic. It just takes 
uh, it eliminates the abilities uh, for human beings to do something really stupid like we've just done with QE and QT and d- even discussing MMT and all that nonsense. Yeah, no, completely agree with that. And yeah, I think you and I share the same view that nobody can predict the future, right? I always use that line, no amount of intelligence increases the clarity of one's crystal ball. So you can't necessarily blame the Fed for not predicting the future, even though with hindsight, it seems kind of obvious, but you can blame them for maybe looking at the wrong data points. I mean, it's beyond me how Powell wasn't simply looking at house prices around his own neighborhood, accelerating at the pace that they were accelerating and saying, well, maybe that's a sign that there's way too much liquidity in the system. You know, it's... (laughs) You know, they made all this stuff off about inflation, about needing 2% inflation, and they deluded themselves into thinking that um, um, that the dangers were deflation. And, you know, after the 08 bust, I mean, the, the, the problem was going to be a depression. You know, a little, I mean, I, the average person is not going to get, not going to dislike deflation. Deflation assets, as the things you need get cheaper. Who's against that? So the, the, the central banks have twisted the 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 the, the language and the logic uh, to where they were, you know, they wanted two percent inflation and they wanted to make up for not having. It's like having two percent inflation meant you could, you know, that the, the, you you you'd found the holy grail. I mean, there's just things that got that got made up and were just were were um um uh, um made out to be dogma that were just just nonsense. I mean, there's no there was never part of the Fed chart and it needed two percent inflation. They just said it enough times that everyone said, okay, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, you repeat a lie enough times that it ends up being true. Well, I guess what I would say is that the Fed is going to stay tight, or you know, tight. Like they, you know, they're going to keep raising rates and they're going to start QT, and and they'll do that until something something important breaks. What is that? I, I don't know. Some level of stock market activity. Uh, you know, some big company. So I I don't know what it'll be deemed to be breaking but something bad will happen and they'll find a reason to to pause or something like that i don't think they can conquer inflation but they can break asset markets because they blew they created such a big bubble i don't know you i'd be it's very difficult to forecast or have any confidence in your guess about how this might play out because first place you know, QE as an idea is only a decade old they tried to exit last time they got partway down the path and then they had to stop and uh, they're so much more strung out this time. You know, I, I don't know how far they'll get before they, before they, before they try to declare victory. Obviously, a lot of stock market types thought they wouldn't be able to even stick around this long. It's taken next to nothing to get this big wipe out in the stock market. We had had seventy five ba- basis points of tightening, and basically just the you know the rundown of QE. We haven't really started QT, so. Just goes to show you how 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 fraught with risk the market all was that it didn't take much of anything to to cause it to kind of cave in. Right. And we also suggest that maybe the the multiplier the multiplier effect is largely broken, right? Because it's not really uh, in a world of so much liquidity. It turns out there's not much when you need it the most, right? Which I think is what this this year it's kind of playing out to to look like. Um, I, I want you, Bill, to spend a few minutes a little bit on trading bear markets. Um, I keep on using this line that bear markets make fools of both bulls and bears. Yeah. Because, right, you have these this belief that you're going to have a directional collapse and then suddenly have a 10, 15, 20% rally that rips your face off and then you switch and then you go short again. And 
you know, so, so talk about sort of the difficulty of environments like this, because it's more than just direction, right? It's also about volatility that goes both ways. Right. That's why I talk about tactics being so important. I mean, and that's what made 2008 so difficult. I mean, the S&P, I think, was down 38%. I think that year I was up like 42 or 43%. And if you'd have told me ahead of time, look, the S&P is going to be down 38, how much are you going to be up? I would have said, I don't know, 60 or 70 and but it was so difficult because they kept changing the rules and they come up with these big programs that just throw these epic surges way bigger than the ones we've seen now and they would come out of nowhere i mean this has this this we haven't really seen that you know since the market finally started to break here in the last couple of months it's been kind of straight down there've been a couple of big bounces but it's 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 tricky. I mean, it's really tricky in terms of how do you manage the risk of keeping the stuff on through through these 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 phases, and um, it's more of a you have to have conviction because you got to be able to ride it out, but you got to be flexible enough to say, oh, maybe this can go on longer. It's, I, you know, it's really kind of an it's it's kind of an art. I mean, I I, I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back because I did it. I'm just saying I can't really give you any rules. You kind of have a, have to have a sense of when things maybe they can bounce and kind of got to move your, your exposure around a little bit. It's, it's kind of hard to use options when the VIX gets so, uh, you know, gets pumped. I'm using the VIX figuratively as a, as a pump up of, uh, uh, implied volatility across the board. Um, but, um, so it's, it's, it just, it's just difficult. You have to have real conviction and you've got to know why you've got things on and you've got to be willing to, to, to take some stuff off on extremes and you, you just have to kind of manage your way through it. But, but how would people that are not, pros at this like you what what should they really be doing i'm not saying give advice obviously but in the sense that you know the, the problem with cash even though obviously it's worked this year is that after inflation it's really not working right the problem with um shorting is that as, you know, as we know right you can get these faces yeah. around that, that that break your conviction right nothing breaks conviction more like a drawdown right so well, yeah well i think if you have an individual short that you're long let's say you like overstock.com as a company i happen to like because not because the retail because another piece of it and maybe i'm short and i'm short a little wayfair against that right because the the retail part of the business is not what i'm interested in i'm interested in their in their in their blockchain businesses but um so i'm short a little wayfair against overstock well that's kind of i'm just trying to you know manage one piece of the risk of that particular idea but you know i'm short apple because i think it's going to go down in price and uh so it's 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 not an easy thing to do and i think while for the average person yes you're going to lose money on your cash but that's why the, some of the picks you have have to be the kind of things that can do very well so let's say i got uh, you know pick a number you got 10 or 20 percent in precious metals and mining stocks well let's say over the course of two years and then you carry a certain amount of cash well, over the course of a couple of years, let's say whatever you that that part of your portfolio goes up fifty or hundred percent. Well, that twenty percent makes up for a certain amount of the eight percent you lost or ten percent you lost over a couple of years in the cash. I mean, it, it, the problem is in inflationary environments, the things that tend to do the best are a little bit less liquid. And if you're going to own less liquid things, you have to have more cash to not get yourself in trouble when you have illiquid investments, right? Um, not to say mining stocks are liquid, but precious metals and a lot of the things that, that, that tend to do well. So it's it's unavoidable that you'll have some cash that may deteriorate, 
but it, it, it's got a certain amount of optionality that goes with it as to when you deploy it. And maybe the time that you deploy it, you end up making, you know, uh, you know, some big return on it. So I don't think you can get too, fo- if you get too focused on the fact that, well, gee, if I hold cash, I'm losing, you know, seven or 8% or five or whatever number you think it is. You can't let that make you neurotic. You've just got to say, I've got to hold some cash because I, 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 I need to manage the risk of something really bad happening so I can take advantage of it. If you don't have any cash, you can't take advantage of it and you're liable to get hurt when it happens. So you, you, you just can't, you can't perfectly maximize it. You know, I mean, now to the extent that you have cash and some precious metals, you're doing better than if you just had plain stocks. So in, 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 the other thing about bear markets that, that, that I think it was Richard Russell used to say is in the bear markets, whoever loses least wins, you know? So then there's that side of it as well. Yeah, I used to, I used to read the uh, Dow theory letters uh, from Russell back, obviously, when he was still alive quite a bit. Um, all right, so maybe to round out here, and again, everybody that's in this space, make sure you follow uh, Bill here, obviously very knowledgeable and kind enough to spend uh, time with us. Um, you had mentioned Volcker. I want to kind of go round trip as far as the conversation here. Um, I'm just curious your thoughts. Who do you think has had uh, had it? I don't know, has or had it harder? Uh, Volcker in the '80s or Powell here? And the reason I'm saying that is obviously inflation was larger back then, and the pain had to be felt. But leverage was a hell of a lot less, right? So it seems like uh, Powell might be in a worse spot than Volcker ever was. But but riff on that for a little bit. Well, uh, Powell's problem is his own creation he and janet and ben and al before him but they kind of was that's kind of a continuum of federal bank stupidity is that 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 those people that i gave you volcker well you know the central banks before him hadn't been quite as reckless they'd kind of rationalized things but they hadn't said well we like two percent inflation and and you know we're going to try qe and we're going to you know we're going to make up for past under inflating and they, they, we, they we sat through a couple of bubbles so you know you can't so 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 volcker came into a situation and came up with a rationale i'm going to regulate the quantity of money and within this band and that kind of took the human element out of it i mean once they made the decision as what the band would be they could be wrong about that but it gets back to the point i made earlier when you're only allowed to do a certain amount then you know it, you got some kind of governor on on how crazy things can get I think people that don't live through it underestimate how difficult it was to do what he did. I mean, you know, there were, you know, farmers and uh, I know a lot of home builders. I mean, they hated him, right? Because he jacked rates and 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 there, a lot of a lot of businesses suffered because of what he did. But then he got inflation under control. But people didn't believe it even after it happened in 84, after the economy got strong, rates backed up to I think long rates got to, you know, somewhere between 12 and 14. Again, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I can remember in our equity portfolios, we were buying uh, zeros um, um, because we could get yields of maturity of, you know, 12, 13%, which is a pretty good compounding rate when it's guaranteed. Uh, so it took a while for inflation psychology to really die. And just as it's taken a while to get it revved up again, um, I don't think the the present the present group and and recent past members of the central banks they talk a good game. They say, "Well, we have the tools." We it's not about tools. It's about having the backbone. Look, they've had no backbone. They've raised seventy five basis points. They're gonna you know, and they're gonna we're gonna get tough in the future. We promise. I mean, so I don't think they understand what it would take. I don't think Powell has anywhere near the nerve just because he can spell 
Paul Volcker doesn't mean he can do what, what have the nerve to do what he did, you know? Um, um, so, uh, now if, if, if Paul Volcker was, you know, you know, it, it was still alive and he says, okay, I'm taking over for Jerome Powell tomorrow. Would he be able to do exactly what he did before? Uh, uh, no, but I, maybe he wouldn't need to because of the precarious nature of things. But when you've been abusing monetary policy for going on 25 years, there is no relatively painless way out. It's going to be pain. It's like any sort of detox program, whether it's drugs or alcohol. Anytime you've been doing things that are bad for you for a long time, you know, I, you know, uh, uh, whether it's alcohol addiction or drug addiction. It's an addiction, just and I would argue we have a monetary addiction. We 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 can't leave these policies as we're gonna see. And each time we've tried to leave since QE, we have been very unsuccessful. It worked for a while and then they had to stop. And I, I suspect that'll happen again. So um I think trying to compare the eras is, is rather difficult, as you noted. Um I don't consider Powell to be anything uh on the uh, uh, on the order of what Volcker was. I mean, not even close. Uh Bill, this was a, a real pleasure. I'm gonna have this again as an you uh, edited YouTube video probably the next week or two. Uh, Bill, thank you so much, and everybody enjoy the rest of your uh, afternoon and evenings here. Thank you, Bill. All righty, thanks. Bye-bye. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.